This week, we examine the moral force of Justice Neil Gorsuch, whose recent opinion accompanying the expiration of Title 42 gives us compelling insights as to how the instrument of fear has driven government, legislatures, and even the courts themselves to abandon everything Americans previously believed, all in the name of emergencies. We also delve into the dangers presented by Governor Lee's insistence that a special session be held in August to consider red flag laws. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. Oh, well, yeah. That's an easy one. You know what's cool about this song? What? And, I, and it's one of my favorite places to go. When everything fell apart in COVID and I couldn't go to my hairdresser anymore, you know what? My hairdresser. My, my <laughs> hairdresser. Hair, my, sorry, my hairstylist. Wow. My, not my hairstylist. My hair. The, the lady who cut my hair. <laughs> well, yeah, see, it wasn't a barber yet. I go to a barber now. Was it in Mayberry? Is that, is that what you're well, getting to? Well, so I, I started going to this new barber who didn't care whether or not I wore a mask. And it, it feels like America because you walk in there mm. and, and the Andy, he's got a DVD playing all day long of the Andy, Andy Griffith, Griffith show. show. Oh, that'd be awesome. And, uh, you know, and it's got the whole like barber thing turning outside and, and you walk in and Andy Griffith's playing and yeah, I love it. So I love that too. And I love that era. And um, the reason I started with this is the other night, my wife and I were watching, did I tell you how we, we started watching YouTube I'm so old-fashioned that I would look through the television tr to try to find... I, I always tell my wife, this is the phrase, when my eyes are tired, I'm done with work, I'm done with dinner, done with whatever tasks need to be done around the house, and, th and then I say, before I go to bed, we'll get a cup of tea and watch mindless television, mm -hmm. right? Something just like a, a sitcom or something. And I ran out of channels on the television. There's just nothing there. And my children said, well, why don't you watch YouTube? And... I had never thought of watching YouTube on television. I know, say, catch up to the times. So among the various, you know, we I've watched a lot because I love aircraft. I love both military and civilian aircraft. I've watched, watched a lot of uh, YouTube shows about why wrecks have happened. A, a lot of aircraft wrecks that happened when I was younger. Now they have a lot of new analysis and computer imagery of, of how these wrecks happen. So anyway tooling along and this we, we've also watched a lot of um, interviews documentaries of artists that we like and we found this week a couple days ago a, an interview long form interview with Ron Howard so obviously Ron Howard was Opie and got mm -hmm. his start on the Andy Griffith show yep. and the interview was great and it reminded me do you know Clint Howard his brother his younger brother so Clint most people would probably agree in fact Clint would probably agree and this is not meant to disparage Clint, but Clint would not have all the movies he's been in if it weren't for his brother, Ron, right? He's he's not very attractive. I think that's kind of the role that he plays usually as a non an unattractive guy. So he was in a lot of Ron Howard How would you movies. like that role? You, you always get called to be the ugly guy. <laughs> well, not, not necessarily <laughs> ugly, but he, def he definitely is not like your... He's not Tom Cruise, right? The homely guy. But he would always find himself in Ron Howard movies. So, like, in Apollo 13, when they are um, in Houston trying to uh, help the astronauts figure out how to stay alive, and they say, okay, guys, and they throw all this equipment out on the table, you know, and they say, and rebuild this, 
he's one of he's one of the guys in Houston or plays one of the guys in Houston. He's also in The Grinch, you know, the Jim Carrey movie mm-hmm. which Ron Howard directed. Um, he's one of the Whoville people. He's very recognizable. If you look him up, you'd say, oh, yeah, I know Clint Howard. Well, Clint Howard is a conservative. So he's one of the few conservatives in Hollywood. Ron Howard, obviously, is not. Is not, yeah. But I would say Ron Howard is your is more of a traditional liberal, right? He's not really an aggressive, uh, an aggressive liberal, but not justifying his views. So Clint Howard was one time a panelist at a Heritage Foundation event uh, in on the West Coast, and they had they had Clint Howard, and <laughs> there were only two, right? This is, shows you how shallow Hollywood is. There were two conservatives on the panel. The other one was the co-producer of Back to the Future. Not Bob Zemeckis, Zemeckis, but the other Bob. I forget his name. So they both identify as conservatives. And one of the questions that came to Clint Howard was, how in the world you had the same family, their parents were married, not divorced, not a broken family. How in the world does a Ron Howard and a Clint Howard grow up in the same household? And he didn't really have an answer any deeper than saying, I don't know, but but my parents taught me the same thing they taught my brother Ron, and they taught Ron the same thing. You know, they grew up in Oklahoma, good old American family. And as my wife and I were talking about this, you know, Ron Howard's been married to the same wife since 1975, met her in high school. They've had a very stable family, four children. And it became apparent to us, again, it's kind of isolating on the importance of the family even in Ron Howard's life, and Ron Howard, as we know, is a liberal, he's a Democrat, and he's, and he's outspoken about it, but I, as I would say, probably not. I don't know his exact views, but I get the sense that he would probably be put off a little bit by some of the aggressive policies of the, of the left and, and how far they've gone. But when you think about his family and his parents' family, that envi- even that environment that would produce a conservative child and a liberal child in the same family speaks to at least this, that there was at least enough of a structure that that could happen. Right? right today, we know the left is attacking the family. They wouldn't stand for that today. It's like, how dare you have mm. not both of your children be liberals and be right. flaming liberals? We couldn't, we can't allow that. And so my wife and I just had this very sobering conversation again about the centrality all that we're doing politically all that we're doing about election integrity and fighting at the state level and the federal level at the end of the day if we do not protect and defend the family Mm. and particularly the family that's rooted in our christian faith in the way that god intended family to be it doesn't matter what we do in those other areas we're devastated and which led to one more thing and then i'll close this segment a lot of times when I've spoken about that to people who come up and say at some event or some occasion that's social or formal, how, what do we do? And I say, raise your children in the fear of the Lord. That's the most important thing you do, you can do because, but people get impatient. They're like, but that takes too long. You know, my child is one now and it takes 16 years for that child to be 16 or 18 to be introduced to the world, to have impact. I'm like, yes, but if you don't, if you don't do that, we have nothing left, right? Because the left is aiming to destroy the family. And that's our, Jesus did nothing other than encouraging us one day at a time, discipling, 
preaching the gospel, testifying to what is true one person at a time. And I think sometimes, Gary, we get so caught up in needing to change the entire scope of the conversation on a big national, international basis, because every day we see on the internet, and it seems overwhelming, but I'm telling myself and reminding myself of the impact of one family and what it can have on society and on culture, and we must do it because the left is seeking to destroy it. Yeah, completely agree. And I, you know, I was just thinking too, the left especially, I mean, I don't think there's any room for critical thinking. I mean, though you would hope that if one is taught to critically think, they would walk away with conservative values. The fact is, well, not not always. And in the case of the Howard family, yeah, I bet I bet that's you don't how could you possibly see that at least as often maybe as you used to in today's world where you're not you're not allowed to critically think. You're not allowed to have your own viewpoint. You are forced into a particular ideology and beat with cat of nine tails, you yeah. know, if you don't. So I think that is an interesting take on um, the ability of families to still be a family yet have perhaps some differing viewpoints. By the way, there's one footnote to that that I thought was interesting. So quiz question for you. Do you know when the Andy Griffith show began and when it ended, oh, how long it ran? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure it started in the 50s. I would have to imagine late 50s or early 60s. Yeah, you're you're right on. But, so the but, pilot the pilot season was 1959. Okay, but how long it ran? I don't know. And it ended after the 68 season. Okay. So it ran for nine seasons, and would you include the pilot? It was a 10 year part of Ron Howard's life from the time he was four till he was 14. Formative years, right? Mm-hmm. Well, he was effectively homeschooled in that environment. They didn't necessarily call it homeschooled. No kidding. So how do you but, how do you walk out of that environment as a liberal? Yeah, <clears throat> I don't know specific to him, but he noted that when Andy Griffith ended and he was kind of disappointed, he he knew it was its run, but when, um, uh, why is its name escaping me? Who is, uh, Don Knotts? Oh, well, oh you're talking about Andy Griffith. Yeah. Um, well, isn't it? It's what? not, it's not Andy. Griffith. Wait, what's his name? It's Andy Griffith. It's right? Andy Griffith. I think. <laughs> That's why they call it the I'm Andy Griffith sure. Show. I'm sitting here with that. Uh, sorry, I watched too much hockey last night. I was up so late. I'm tired. But he said that one of the things that changed for him was that he went to public school for the first time. Because from 4 to 14, he had been schooled, you know, effectively by tutors and at home because he was acting for 10 years. So, yeah, I don't know how he became a liberal through that, but he certainly developed, even when you hear him interview, he's a highly intelligent person. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that there is moral sensibility in him that doesn't occupy the hearts of, of a lot of liberals today, right? So there's there's a respect that I have for him, not on his political views, but you can tell that he was raised with the right environment, and he has this framework that is really adopted after the created order, whether he recognizes it or not. Yeah, super interesting. Well, I'm not sure what he would think about what we're going to discuss today and and how— much in favor he is or not of illegals pouring across our border. But, of course, we've been in the middle, you know, nationally here over this conversation of Title 42, the end of Title 42, especially in the wake of now that the United States federal government has officially ended. You know, we're not in emergency anymore, Kevin. I didn't know if you knew that. <laughs> I'm so glad you told me, Gary. So, you know, we are officially, everyone can rest now. You can you can breathe deeply we are no longer in a state of emergency. 
Well, that of course, when that happened, that freaked everybody out because now Title Forty Two is is going away, and everyone's going to start pouring across the border. And um, I, I want to read this statement by uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch from the Supreme Court. Uh, this decision was rendered, by the way, on May eighteenth, so just a few days ago. And you know, he, it's interesting how he sets it up because he talks about. You know, Title 42, the only reason Title 42 existed was because of COVID. The The premise of Title 42 was to keep all of these potential immigrants out that could spread COVID throughout the United States, right? <clears throat> but, even, even though they didn't make them wear masks, take tests, right. or anything. They just kind of released them into the— And piled them into detention centers, right? Um, <laughs> no social distance. There no, was no six-feet, yeah. six-foot distancing. But in any case, interestingly— it's been conservative states, though, that has used Title 42 on a completely opposite yes. basis, at least to keep this tidal wave of illegal immigrants at bay. Yep. Anyway, this decision came down. They, in fact, rendered the state's motion to intervene to keep Title 42. The Supreme Court struck that down, rendered it moot on the basis that Title 42 is defunct because mm -hmm. there is no emergency. Yep. Which, by the way, as much as I want to keep our border shut and keep people out of the, the country that are coming right. here illegally... <clears throat> this is the wrong tool. He's absolutely right. Yep. He's 100% right. Yep. So, after the, the decision, I want to read a section of Neil's... Uh, Neil. <laughs> uh, that's very disrespectful. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, like, like I know his name, right? Like, like Neil and I are hanging out this evening, <laughs> having a bourbon. Um, You're intellectually hanging <laughs> that's out, that's right? Justice Gorsuch. Uh, I want to read a, a piece of his statement he issued because I thought, which is, which by the way, as a legal matter, is interesting, right? Because it's not an opinion; it's not a legal opinion. But it's a statement. It's a that, statement. It's a statement that he's attached to this decision, right? Which becomes. Um, a tool for someone who in the few, the reason judges do this to anybody who's not familiar with the legal process, just like when you write a dissent that doesn't have legal bearing on that case, it yeah. does inspire future cases. It gives the legal and the moral arguments for future lawyers when they're making arguments. It, it's not binding, but I, but I believe it's called like it's dicta. Is, it, is it's the, definitely dicta. Yeah. yeah. So that said, Kevin, I think there are some very poignant statements in here. So I'm going to start reading on, on page four. And um, y'all listen up to what he had to say about the emergency that we've just been through. Now, keep in mind, this is a sitting member of the United States Supreme Court. So that's important to keep in mind as I read this. Here we go. Since March 2020, we may have experienced the greatest intrusions on civil liberties in the peacetime history of this country. Executive officials across the country issued emergency decrees on a breathtaking scale. Governors and local leaders imposed lockdown orders, forcing people to remain in their homes. They shuttered businesses and schools, public and private. They closed churches, even as they allowed casinos and other favored businesses to carry on. They threatened violators, not just with civil penalties, but with criminal sanctions, too. By the way, we did that here in Tennessee mm -hmm. as well. They surveilled church parking lots, recorded license plates, and issued notices 
warning that attendance at even outdoor services satisfying all state social distancing and hygiene requirements could amount to criminal conduct. They divided cities and neighborhoods into color-coded zones, forced individuals to fight their freedoms, fight for their freedoms in court on emergency timetables, and then changed their color-coded schemes when defeat in court seemed imminent. Federal executive officials entered the act too, not just with emergency immigration decrees. They deployed a public health agency to regulate landlord-tenant relations nationwide. They used the Workplace Safety Agency, OSHA, to issue a vaccination mandate for most working Americans. They threatened to fire non-compliant employees and warn that service members who refused to vaccinate might face dishonorable discharge and confinement. Along the way, it seems federal officials may have pressured social media. Listen to this. Miss, mm-hmm. we have a Supreme Court justice acknowledging, yep, acknowledging from the bench that federal officials may have pressured social media companies to suppress information about pandemic policies with which they disagreed. While executive officials issued new emergency decrees at a furious pace, state legislatures and Congress the bodies normally responsible for adopting our laws too often fell silent. Courts, listen to this yeah, statement. Yeah, he does give the courts a... This is huge. Mm-hmm. Courts bound to protect our liberties addressed a few, but hardly all, of the intrusions upon them. In some cases like this one, courts even allowed themselves to be used to perpetrate emergency public health decrees for collateral purposes, itself a form of emergency lawmaking by litigation. I love that phrase, emergency lawmaking by litigation. Yeah. And so he's not only decrying the federal officials and what the state legislatures failed to do, he's giving it to the courts Mm -hmm. right here himself. He continues, Doubtless, many lessons can be learned from this chapter in our history, and hopefully serious efforts will be made to study it. One lesson might be this. Fear and the desire for safety are powerful forces. They can lead to a clamor for action, almost any action, as long as someone does something to address a perceived threat. A leader or an expert who claims he can fix everything, if only we do exactly as he says, can prove an irresistible force. We do not need to confront a bayonet. We only need a nudge before we willingly abandon the nicety of requiring law. I love how he says it. The nicety of requiring laws to be adopted by our legislative representatives and accept rule by decree. Along the way, we will accede to the loss of many cherished civil liberties the right to worship freely, to debate public policy without censorship, to gather with friends and family are simply to leave our homes. We may even cheer on those who ask us to disregard our normal lawmaking processes and forfeit our personal freedoms. Say 20 months of uh, no session here in the state of Tennessee, right? (laughs) That's right. Let's just all stay home. We We can't go to work because of COVID. Of course, this is no new story. Even the ancients warned that democracies can degenerate towards autocracy in the face of fear. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip down to the very last paragraph of this statement. He says this. Despite that law, he's talking about the National Emergencies Act here. Despite that law, the number of declared emergencies has only grown in the ensuing years. It is hard not to wonder whether after nearly a half century 
And in light of our nation's recent experience, another look is warranted. It is not hard to wonder, too, whether state legislatures, listen up, state of Tennessee, Supreme Court Neil Gorsuch talking here, it is not hard to wonder if state legislators might profitably re-examine the proper scope of emergency executive powers at the state level. At the very least, one can hope that the judiciary will not soon again allow itself to be part of the problem by permitting litigants to manipulate our docket and perpetuate a decree designed for one emergency to address another. Make no mistake, decisive executive action is sometimes necessary and appropriate, but I love this warning here. But if emergency decrees promise to solve some problems, they threaten to generate others. Hmm. And rule by indefinite emergency edict risks leaving all of us with a shell of a democracy and civil liberties just as hollow. Where, where was this three years ago? Yeah, it's it's when he talks about the courts participating in this process through emergency lawmaking by litigation. I think this has been one of the big discouragements. I have a friend who is um, he lives on the West Coast and he plays in orchestras. And he updates me from time to time about all of the illegal decrees that have been imposed upon him. Violations of the Constitution left and right, violations of labor laws, violations even of their own unions rules. But the inability to resolve these disputes has been because the courts have been complicit. Right. You can't go to a court and say, but the Constitution was violated. The court says, doesn't matter, emergency. You don't have standing. <laughs> it's Where else do you go in that yeah. in that context? It's incredible to me at this point now in 2023, after all we've been through, here you have a sitting Supreme Court justice who is acknowledging how everything that we've done the last three years is absolute, who who is acknowledging that while our liberties were being stolen from us, that state legislators sat by mm-hmm. inactive and that courts failed yep. to defend those liberties. I mean, it's... It's an incredible statement, and I, and I will just say here in Tennessee, we saw all of that here at the state level. I mean, worth noting here, yes, we we filed <clears throat> suit against the governor over the emergency. We filed suit against local school boards who were mandating masks with no authority to do so. We filed suit against county mayors who were unlawfully by executive edict Mm -hmm. given powers not found anywhere in statute or the constitution to mandate masks. We sued Middle Tennessee State University for forcing vaccines on nursing students, and we sued Ascension Healthcare for not honoring the religious exemptions of employees over these shots. And what did the courts do? No in all of those cases, well, and, uh, or most of them, one of them was rendered moot. Two of them was thrown out on standing, and the the other two against the hospitals failed once the Supreme Court overturned the OSHA mandate, but upheld the C- That's right. the That's CMS right. mandate. So as soon as the court upheld the Medicare Medicaid mandate over the hospitals, by the way which only threatened federal funding. That's a whole nother yep, uh, about the money. podcast. Those lawsuits fell apart. So it's, it's, but, but now, but now, Kevin, no, we finally, there's no lawsuit pending. So we can't 
He's not providing anyone relief. Right. We can't go back and give you your liberties back that were mm-hmm, stolen. Mm-hmm. We can't go back and give you all of the money you lost because your business was shuttered. Mm, don't even get me started on that one. Yeah, we have a Supreme Court justice acknowledging, though, from the bench that all of it was unconstitutional, unlawful, and wrong. You know, it's interesting, too, because when you talk about Gary not having standing and the reasons that uh, one declared moot in those lawsuits, that suggests to me that the courts were just as afraid as everybody else. So to anybody who hopes that the court is going to be somehow inoculated from this general societal fear, that's not the case, right? These judges and justices go home. They went home afraid of getting COVID too, and they probably went home thinking that they wore their masks and took their jabs that they were going to be better. So because of that fear, which is why I like this this one sentence that I highlighted here, Gary, from what you read, he said one lesson might be this, fear and the desire for safety are powerful forces. Yeah. They can lead to a clamor for action, almost any action, as long as someone does something to address a perceived threat. I don't know if you remember that when Tucker Carlson gave his last speech right before he was fired from Fox, one of the lines, it was a speech at a Heritage 50th anniversary, actually. One of the lines he gave was he was talking about the power of fear. And he said, in his view, fear is more of a driving force than the sexual drive and even the drive to eat, to live. And what we've seen over the last three years would suggest that, right? People doing people doing um, unreasonable, irrational things. So let me draw it to one more point. So in my book, A Reason for Hope, which is the third of the three little books that I've been working on, one of which we you know, already released, Apologetic for Liberty, I talk about this very thing, which is why I got excited when you sent me this Neil Gorsuch piece, because I'm talking about how the enemy has entered America and how he has stolen our beliefs. And my question is, how does he steal our beliefs? Through the instrument of fear. Fear, you see, makes us second guess our beliefs. And once we become uncertain of our beliefs, someone else's beliefs become equally plausible. Mm. Eventually, those other beliefs, whether or not true and no matter how irrational, become dominant. We've just experienced the most comprehensive worldwide orchestrated campaign of fear in all of human history. And to what effect? Hundreds of millions of individuals, great and small, abandoned everything they previously claimed to believe. It's true. It's exactly what happened. Fear. So it's it's real. And, you know, what we were trying to do in the courts was bring reason back into the conversation mm-hmm. because we knew that the only thing we were experiencing was the result of fear. Yeah. So in that moment, we needed the court to go back to the Constitution yep. and bring reason back to everything we were doing. For example, I, I want to point out, you know, we I talked about this one case that was moot. I want people to understand what happened and what the courts were actually doing during this time. And really, I think anybody who is part of this should, should be removed from the bench mm-hmm. for failing to protect those liberties and do what was required of them in the moment. In the lawsuit, <laughs> this is what happens in the courts, hear me. In the lawsuit that got rendered moot, this we filed suit against our county mayor here in Williamson County, Rogers Anderson. Not because he's a horrible guy personally, but because he was acting 
on what we felt was an illegitimate power given to him illegitimately by the governor. The governor had issued an executive order that extended powers to county mayors to issue mask mandates. And our county mayor here in Williamson County made the mandate for masks. So we filed a lawsuit. And we were simply asking the court a question. The question was, does this court find anywhere in our state constitution or our laws by which the governor actually has authority given to him by the people to prescribe new powers to a county mayor to make these kinds of mandates? And, of course, they don't. However, what the court did in that situation was – Sit it in the docket for eight months. So for eight months, mm-hmm. we got nothing. By the way, what do you think was going on in that eight months? What were they waiting for? Well, they were waiting for anything to happen to where they didn't have to address the <laughs> exactly. issue. Exactly. So they didn't have to be the and one so, to address it. And so during that eight months, what happened? The governor's executive order that gave county mayors these powers finally expired. So then the trial date was set for after the time where these orders didn't it had expressed so what did the judge do well he just rendered the case moot we don't have a case anymore because you're no longer under a mask mandate cowards but that wasn't didn't want to address the question the question we asked is was that an appropriate use of power and is it constitutional so the court waited to such a time where it could render the case moot and not answer the question this is what was going on Right. For three years. Isn't it remarkable, Gary, how, again, it's it's associated with fear. It's it's FOMO, right? Fear of missing out the drive or the desire to be like everybody else, to think like everybody else, to not be different, that we criticize and raise our children not to worry about. Right. When they're in elementary school and high school and that age, don't go along with your friends just because all your friends are doing it. If all your friends are smoking marijuana, if all your friends are getting in trouble, be different. Be a man of integrity. Be a girl of integrity. And yet, this is what judges are doing. It's peer pressure. I don't want to be the one to decide that the <laughs> right. government doesn't have that authority. There's no statutory authority. Uh, wait until someone else makes that decision. Now I don't have to say it. I can look like I was, uh, what, patient in the process and using my discretionary judicial power. It's it's lack of courage. They're cowards. Which really brings us to the the pressing issue of the day and that's and that's what's happened back to what this statement has to deal with title 42 and what's actually going on at the yep. border so title 42 went away but uh, but apparently I, I read some articles that state that now the uh the new restrictions at the border are, are supposedly stronger than title 42 well if that's true praise god i don't know if that's true yet or not but but something i wanted to point out the dangers that we face is i, I read this in an article from uh the Guardian, based mm-hmm. on Title 42 going away. Listen to this number. This number is astounding. And this is, this is, a, this is um, there was a link to follow the report. This is government record. Under Title 42, so what, over the last two and a half years, however long that's been in effect, whatever, two, two no, and a half years? No, it goes back to the Trump administration. goes back to, actually, yeah. you're right, it goes back to 2020. April 2020. Mm-hmm. So for three years, under Title 22, uh, 42, it was used to remove or restrict or send back 2.7 million illegal immigrants. Mm-hmm. Think about that. 2.7 mm-hmm. million yep. illegal immigrants. 
imagine if Title 42 yep. was not in place, we would have an additional illegal immigrant population to the tune of 2.7 million in that span. On top of the, what are we doing, about 2 million a year now whatever, anyway? Whatever we're doing now. Yeah. The, which should signal, I mean, the, the threat we face right now at the border and the consequences that we're going to face for essentially now really not having a national border, mm-hmm. not only economically, but the terrorist forces that yeah. we may now be allowing. And I saw something else that, that an article pointed out uh, last week. There was a picture of a room full of all of these illegal immigrants that were coming in that were being bussed. All you saw in the picture was military-aged males. Yes, yes. There are no women and children. These are not – They at least they weren't in the pictures. These were all young adult males. Who are they and where are they coming from? And why is it only the a, a great majority of young adult military-aged males illegally crossing our border? <clears throat> On that point, Gary, there have been between October 22 and February of 23 alone. So this even this story is a little bit dated. There were the equivalent of six battalions of Red Chinese Army that has crossed the southern border of the United States. <laughs> A couple hundred every day, right? So there's an infantry regiment in the PLA has around 2,800 people and a battalion has 700. And there were 4,200 that came over during that time period of young, fighting-aged Chinese. Yeah, and that's in addition to you've got the same coming from Afghanistan and Middle Eastern countries that Muslim Brotherhood and Muslim infiltration. You've got Chinese infiltration Anybody who pretends or tries to pretend that this is not having lasting cultural national security issues is fooling themselves. This is just it's changing our country every day and putting us at big risk. And and great for them, you know, because at least here in the state of Tennessee, you know, we did pass a law that you do not have to be a United States citizen or even have a visa for that matter to apply and attain uh, a professional business license here in the state of Tennessee. So, mm. uh, you know, it's all your border crossers. Um, I don't know. Come come start businesses My here goodness. in Tennessee. What, what, the, what the hell does that say? Mm. What kind of message does that send? So it's a little bit of a shift from that, Gary. But as you're talking about Tennessee, I think we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit more about this so-called special session that our governor wants to, for reasons beyond, maybe we can talk about that. Why do you think Governor Bill Lee is insistent upon having a special session. He's given a date, so he's given three months' notice, right, right. to all the rabble-rousers. This is when you can come and make trouble. Yeah, prepare. He's giving you time yeah. to prepare. For him, Bill Lee, to try to persuade our legislature to pass red flag laws, I can tell you, and then I'll, I'll give you the floor to um, to comment, I was at a conference last week with people from all over the country, and I was shocked, I was pleasingly shocked, how they were all over Tennessee saying, why in the heck is your governor even allowing this to happen? I was delighted that they were engaged on the issue. But why do you think, I mean, does he really have the support of the legislature at this point? Why is he doing this? No, he, and that, so I I really can't answer that question. I can't figure it out because I will tell you, he does not, to my knowledge, have support of the legislature. And and it's kind of, you know, to some degree, I'm, I'm excited that I'm able to say that. I'm I'm sort of shocked that I feel like I need to, because it what we've seen over the last few years 
with this supermajority legislature is that they'll do whatever it is that Bill Lee tells them to do. I mean, he really rules the roost. Right. But on this issue in particular, I think Tennesseans have been incredibly effective communicating with their legislators and, and pushing back uh, on this attempt to diminish uh, our Second Amendment here in our state. And so I, I'm, I'll say I'm thankful so far. So I, I just got off the phone with a state representative before I walked into this studio. And I will tell you this, there is no flavor, no taste whatsoever in the General Assembly to pass anything remotely close to a red flag law. Good. But the thing that that I think they're concerned about and they should be and I'm concerned about is their safety. Yeah. These men and women fully recognize the hellstorm that mm-hmm. Governor Bill Lee is leading them into. And not only uh, he he was clear to 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 say I'm I'm not talking about political danger. I'm talking about yeah, physical. physical danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and why? Because tell us a little bit about some of the stories. I'm sure our audience knows this by now, but there was a, you can call it a whistleblower. Someone was had embedded in the meetings of the left who are seeking to agitate and to, I mean, we can't say the word, but to F up, right? That's, right. that's the language that's been used. So they're already talking about yeah. physical violence at this event. Yeah, I mean, I haven't it's heard... It's terrorism. Yeah, absolutely. But we, so we know... And that's another thing. I mean, we know right now today with proof that those plans are being made, mm-hmm. yet the plans persist. So why, I don't know. Why do you think? Why, why, do you think why, somebody- why, Governor Bill Lee? Why? Who's driving this decision train here? Why are you leading the General Assembly members from their homes into slaughter? Like literally. It's, yeah. it's going to be an incredibly dangerous situation. I will tell you, for one, I certainly will not be there. Yeah. I, Hell I, no. And it's, it's going to be hot, right? August 21st, the heat of summer, that alone is going to agitate people. It adds to the the um, conflagration, kind of the, the, the boiling water. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, is, is, is there someone outside the state that has gotten into his ear? Is there someone in the state that thinks this is a good... I, how could you think this is a good national look? This is violence. I know the left likes it, and the media will love this firestorm. But literally, as you say, we are putting our legislature at risk. We're putting other people, we're putting police officers and sheriffs and and uh, National Guard, I assume, is going to be there probably for that reason, I hope. Putting them at risk. And what a waste of resources, all because stubbornly we want to have red flag laws. Well, I'll just say this. You know, we, we've publicly stated our policy position on this special session is to adjourn immediately. Show up, gavel in, and then gavel out. And they have the—is there anything the governor can do? No. So, so yeah, so that's what I want to say here. So the governor has the constitutional authority to call a special session, and constitutionally they must come in. He, mm-hmm. can, he can send the state troopers after him right. and arrest them. So they have to show up, right? But they don't have to do anything. The The governor has no constitutional authority to make the legislature pass a law. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that process alone beautiful about the, the separation and balance of powers, right? The governor has certain rights and authority and the legislature, and they neither of them can really overrule the other. That's right. Beautiful. But they can show up and immediately adjourn and be done without taking any action. So we've been calling for that. But I, But I will say this. In, in in fear for their own safety, 
I think they should just draft a resolution and commit to not show up at all. Because here's the thing. Technically, can they be arrested? Yes. And would the governor arrest one or two of them? Maybe. But is he going to arrest 100 of them? Probably not. You know, I, I think at this point, the General Assembly members should think long and hard about their districts, what they owe that to their voters, their mm-hmm. their families, their own personal yeah, safety. Family. And I, I, I'm not so sure if I was an elected representative that I would feel compelled. I'm just being honest. I don't know if I would feel very compelled to show up to the special session, knowing that I damn sure ain't going to pass anything right. out, out <clears> of it. So I, I, I just think members of the General Assembly should think long and hard about this. I think this governor absolutely should be repudiated for this decision that he's mm-hmm. made and shamed. Yep. And um, I, I don't know. I would say don't show up at all. But you know they have to do it collectively because if if it's right. just strength a, in numbers, if it's a couple of stragglers, yep. look, it's, it's just like the the do not comply mantra. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine over the course of the last three years if we all would have just said no? no. <laughs> yep. Like, no, exactly. we're not doing it. No, we're not taking your shot. No, we're not social distancing. No, I'm not wearing a mask. No. What are you going to do about it? And what's the quorum that has to that has to be there for business to be taken? Two thirds, I believe. Okay. So as long as two thirds plus one don't show up, they don't even have a quorum, right? Well, no. As long as a third plus one don't show up, they sorry, don't have yes, a quorum. exactly. Yeah. As long as a third plus one don't show up, they yeah. can't do anything. Yeah. Which which means thankfully. In the state of Tennessee, um, yeah, I mean, Democrats can't show up and have a quorum. So, you know, certainly if, if ha- you know, let me try to think through this for a minute. Yeah, how many how many Democrats okay, so, if they all showed up plus Republicans? Well, so like in the House, you've got 99 members of the House. You have 75 of those are Republicans. So what, you need 67, 66 or 67, whatever, members to, to show up for a quorum. So if half... Right. If half of the Republicans, if just half of the Republicans in the House don't show up, like you can't do the business of the they House. don't have because there's 20. You said there's 24 Democrats. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's strength in numbers and it doesn't need to be that big of a number. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we're going to definitely keep talking about it. We've got the summer to talk about this and hopefully cooler heads will prevail and people will take that advice. There, there's still time, you know, before August 21st. And, and you, you know, you have to imagine there's already stuff kind of trickling out over these plans being made. Mm-hmm. I would have to imagine that that's only going to increase and yep. we're only going to learn more and more about the plans being made. Mm-hmm. And like you say, certainly cooler heads will prevail here and, and they will not subject our members of the General Assembly uh, to this absolute nonsense. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be total chaos. I'm with you. Let's pray that happens too. Yep. Thanks, Gary. Yep. And thank you, uh, thank you, Justice Neil Gorsuch. Thank you, thank you to my friend Neil <laughs> for for this great. I love it. We're for gonna, this great statement on civil. We're going to now refer to him as Neil. <laughs> Just one of us. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. Mm